Welcome. You are listening to Intentional Conversations from Nika White Consulting, an encore presentation of our weekly podcast where we intersect diversity, equity, and inclusion with leadership and business. Let the conversation begin. Now, it does me great pleasure to formally introduce today's guest co-host. Um, she's probably familiar to many of you because her voice is one that carries a lot of power and weight, particularly on social media. And so I hope that you're already following her, Dr. Kristen Bansadi. And I'm gonna give her formal introduction as I normally do. Then I will invite her to come and share and greet this audience in her own way. Dr. Kristen Bazzotti is a board certified anesthesiologist with seven years of experience practicing at a private hospital in Texas Medical Center in Houston, Texas. She is the founder of International Intercultural, a cultural consulting company focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion learning programs. In 2009, she became inspired to pursue avenues for cultural understanding, unity, and racial reconciliation after being racially discriminated against and experiencing the power of allyship advocacy from an unlikely source. She is a published cultural writer and successfully ran an intercultural consulting business for six years before starting her firm, IIC. Dr. Bazzotti's approach to diversity, equity, and inclusion programming is rooted in cultural humility. And it's what she describes as an approach that emphasizes we are the learner and not the authority of cultures, communities, and identities outside of our own. We're going to talk about that because I love how Dr. Bazzotti actually um, frames cultural humility. Her work focuses on equity strategies to effectively support communities outside of our own without causing harm. Through a lens of humility and the actions of allyship and advocacy, not only can we respectfully work in diverse environments, we can also work collectively to do our part in creating equity for all. So I am going to stop sharing my screen now so that I can bring to the fore Kristen Bazzotti so that she can just greet us in her own way. I have already prepared her that what we do here at NWC is after we read someone's accolades and bios to help people to understand their credentials and how they show up to this work, that we often like to make sure they can share with us some things that we do not know about them and we could not learn from their bio. So Dr. Bazzotti, welcome and just please introduce yourself in your own way, greet this audience. We're so glad you're here today. Thank you so much. Thank you for the introduction. I'm really happy uh, to be here today with all of y'all. Thanks for uh, coming to this conversation. So just a little bit about myself. I need to update my uh, bio because I've been uh, practicing now in private practice in Houston, Texas for almost 10 years at this point. <laughs> I know, uh, But I was uh, sharing with Nika before this that um, lots of transitions going on in there, getting very busy in this work. So as she was saying, I'm not, uh, first of all, if everyone could please address me as Kristen <laughs> instead of Dr. Bizzotti uh, in this space, that would be wonderful. But um, I knew what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to be a doctor since I was very young. My dad's a doctor. I really looked up to him a lot. And um, I was on that path. I was really, really focused and very happy. So in my 20s, um, I went to University of Michigan out of high school. I was in the Honors College. I worked really 
hard there, um, did very, very well, went back home to Oklahoma for medical school, extremely happy to be back home in Oklahoma. And I showed up to medical school in 2005 and I know go blue, right? (laughs) Um, I showed up to medical school in 2005 and I realized when I walked in that I was the only black student in a class of 200 people. Okay. And coming from a place like Michigan, where they were fighting for their affirmative action policies. When I was there, we were uh, demonstrating on the diag while this was being fought in the Supreme Court. And Michigan really believed in the value of their diverse student body. They wanted that. They fought for it. They pushed for it. Um, they pushed all the way to the Supreme Court for it. And to come back to Oklahoma and to realize, uh, wow, I'm the only one here was very shocking for me. But to be honest, I was really used to navigating those environments um, and I really did not have a problem with it. I just kind of made a note of it and got really focused on med school. I was there to study anyways. So um, I just went along and honestly, I had a great time. I mean, some of my best friends to this day are from medical school, a wonderful experience. And then something happened in my third year that changed everything for me. And that's that I was racially discriminated against by a patient. I was in a clinic and a walked into the room with a supervising physician and the patient asked me to leave the patient room. They said, oh no, I do not want to be seen by a black doctor. That's what they said to me. I'm giving you the sanitized version here because I know this is uh, Nika's podcast and I'm not going to like trigger everyone and say what was like said to me, but it was- using our imaginations. (laughs) Yes. I'm just going to tell you it was a racial slur. It was horrific. It was humiliating. And I couldn't believe that I was spoken to that way. It was really life-changing for me because I remember thinking like, what did I deserve to be spoken to like that? You know, like I just walked into this room with the supervising physician and I thought to myself, why I can, you want to go take a test with me? Like I can, I can take a test with anyone, you know, you want to have a test. Let's go take a test. If we want to have a test of intelligence, I thought this was a meritocracy. This is what I'm thinking in my mind. I worked my butt off at Michigan. I graduated in the top of my class in the honors college. I did really well in my MCATs. I was doing really well in medical school. I was that prototypical, like, I'm going to know everything. I'm going to work twice as hard. I'm going to be very good at what I'm doing. And still this happened to me. And in that moment, it was just, I was like numb. And I thought to myself, wow, the things my parents were telling me about being black in this country and the things I needed to understand, I dismissed them. You know, I told them that it wasn't, that was because y'all grew up in the 1950s in Oklahoma. It's not like that. My friends are not like that. My friends are not racist. My friends don't have these ideas. And I finally realized, uh, nope, you know, I can't ace my way out of this. Like something's going on. And that was my first wake up call. So anyways, The supervising physician did not know what to do. He looked at me like a deer in headlights. He had no clue how to respond. It did not matter in that moment whether he agreed with it or he didn't agree with it. He just didn't know what to do. And he leaned over, kind of embarrassed. And he was like, Kristen, can you just go see another patient in the clinic? And so I left the clinic room. I was in the hall crying. I was so, I was just humiliated. I was so upset. And my classmate saw me. And he asked me what happened. And I told him what happened while I'm sitting there sobbing in the hall. And you know what my classmate did? He walked back to the patient room. He knocked on the door. He got the supervising physician out. 
I speak with a lot of non-healthcare clients. And I try to explain to them, like medical students don't do this. They don't challenge authority in that way. It can be career ruining in our field. Okay. And he said to the supervising physician, we should not be accommodating these patient requests. He said, we should never let a patient come into the clinic and choose who they're seeing based on the color of their skin. And we should not make the only black student that we have in a class of 200 people feel like they aren't welcome in the clinic to see a patient because of their race. And now I'm like really shocked because like I said, I'm the only black student there. And so this person was different me, different from me racially, culturally, ethnically, religiously, politically. They didn't do this because we had the same voting beliefs or because we from the same racial ethnic background. They did this because they had their own commitment to equity. They had courage and they actually had skill. So when the moment happened, it wasn't just, I'm giving you my thoughts and prayers. Like they were skilled up. They knew what to do. And it really changed my life. So long, 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 long story short, uh, that person, I got very close. Uh, we ended up getting engaged. We got married. <laughs> we live in Houston, Texas. So I tell folks, he's an ER doc here. And I tell people I married my first ally advocate. Okay. That's probably very extreme. I tell people, you're probably not going to Mary, your ally advocate, but there's a very deep bond and connection that happens when we show up for each other in this way across the things that make us really different. I became obsessed with this idea of how we connect and engage across the things that make us different, how we operationalize it in organizations so that it's not just an individual person, but that we can skill up teams of people and many people um, and how we do this work on a much bigger level. So that's how I got involved in this. Um, definitely came into this the backdoor way, but there's a lot of need for it. And I, I am very focused on the concept of um, allyship as an equity practice. Wow. <laughs> um, I don't even know where to take this conversation now because there's so many things that are like percolating in my mind based upon that, that story, which I was not expecting that ending. So as I was reading your bio and you talked about advocacy from this unlikely source, I was curious about it. So certainly I was going to have you just share. Um, and I, first and foremost, um, your partner, is, has really created a, a narrative by modeling um, precisely what the essence of advocacy and true allyship looks like. And um, I, I have chill bumps, even just kind of reflecting, I was holding on to your every word. And so first and foremost, how fortunate are you to have a partner in life that um, really truly believes in, in walking the talk? Um, you know, what was coming up for me, Kristen, as you were sharing was, you know, I was, my heart was hurting for you first, as you told your story. And I'm sorry that that was your experience, but I'm also incredibly glad that that was your experience because I believe that that, as you were sharing your story is what has fueled you to be successful in the work that you do right now and reaching so many people. I mean, honestly, right now we could end this podcast and I believe that we would have had an impactful, what, 15 minutes, just because <laughs> of what you shared. I mean that wholeheartedly. But also what I think about is um, cultural humility, right? And how you define cultural humility. And I said, as I was reading your bio, I wanna talk about this. So I'm gonna read this statement again, which are, are your words. How you view cultural humility is an approach that emphasizes we are the learner and not the authority on cultures, communities, and identities 
outside of our own. I think that's so important for us to really just spend some critical reflection time around because when we think about cultural competence, which I have stopped using that language because I more so use intelligence and I like the fact that also humility is something that's finding its way more commonly into the conversation. We're never gonna be culturally competent on different cultures because first of all, they're not our own to your point. <laughs> they're not our own. And there's way too much out there for us to uh, even be exposed to. It's just, it's just not possible. But I love the the reframe of cultural humility, and that is um, a lot of what I saw in the story that you shared. What also is coming up for me, Kristen, is that I know even in NWC right now, we are working on a project for a client who happens to have, they're really large, but they have a lot of retail spaces. And part of the ask is help us to navigate how we can help upskill our employees to be right. able to deal with microaggressions and other forms of oppression that come from the customer base. Because oftentimes, and I'm equating this to the doctor and the patient, right? Oftentimes the, the thought is, is the patient's always right, the customer's always right, we're going to give them a pass, we're going to accommodate for whatever they want, we're not going to correct and address these issues. And I think that what practitioners who are saying harm is harm, no matter where it's coming from, we need to address it. It forces us to be much more thoughtful about how are we upskilling our individuals. So even as you talked about how this individual, your partner now, was, was half the wherewithal and the skilling to be able to know what to do, how to do it effectively, it just brings to the fore the importance of all of us, all of us owning this work of in that moment when we are victims of or either witness to what can we do that can effectively change the outcome. I'm going to stop there and I'm just going to let yeah, you just absolutely. react. I'm like trying to take notes because there's so many things that you're saying that um, can be addressed, but it's a lot, you know, so first of all, um, in the case of my partner, he has to understand that his family is from the Middle East and that he, you know, was born and raised in the United States and Oklahoma. Oklahoma, but his parents were very new immigrants to the United States when he was born. And so his perspective is not fully like what we would consider just like a traditional American perspective. It was very much influenced by Middle Eastern tradition and culture. And the reason why I bring that up is because his parents left their home country because of uh, a revolution and all kinds of things that were going on. And their mentality uh, and a lot of folks in the region is that it is an honor and a privilege to be able to speak up. There are places in this world where if you speak up against some authorities, like you could lose your life, your family could lose their life. There's a lot of silence that happens because you can't speak up. It's such an honor um, for him to speak up. That's how he feels about it. It's such an honor for him to be in this country and to be able to use his voice, even in a way that his parents were not able to use their voices in their home country and things are happening and then they have to leave. And so that's very traumatized. That's a whole nother story, but I will just say that us standing in our power and using it is an honor. It's a privilege. And it's something that a lot of us that are in this work do not take for granted. It's something I never, ever take for granted either. When we're thinking about how we can skill up um, and get ready to uh, face these kinds of things that are happening, I like the framework of cultural humility for mm -hmm. a lot of reasons. It was a concept that was developed um, in the 90s by two physicians, and uh, their idea was that physicians needed to be better at dealing with patients that were different from themselves, um, especially because there was not a lot of representation. And so the whole idea of cultural humility is like, we will never know enough, 
never, 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 ever. No proximity will help us know enough. It doesn't matter if you're married to, it doesn't matter if you went to a faraway land and you live there and you speak the language. It doesn't matter if your kids are, it doesn't matter if your friends are, it doesn't matter if you read a book, if you learned something, if you read 50 books, it doesn't matter if you got a degree in it, nothing, no amount of proximity will ever make us live inside of that identity. And so we lay down the idea that we will ever be competent. We let it go. And this is so freeing in the spaces that I work in because we tell folks, not only do we have to, we don't have to like pretend that we'll know everything. There is a lot of grace there once we lay that down because you're going to make a mistake. I'm going to make a mistake. We're all going to make a mistake because we don't know enough and we'll never know enough and things are fluid and they change. So with the idea of cultural humility is that it's a three part um, concept. And the first pillar is that we just commit to lifelong learning. And if we need to be corrected, then we'll be corrected. And it's not a problem with that. We want to know that information so that we can be more culturally aware and sensitive and understanding and knowledgeable in our interactions. The second pillar of cultural humility is to address power imbalances. And the third pillar, which is what I want to get to when you're talking about your client, is institutional accountability. So there's what we're doing on the individual side and cultural humility, which is our lifelong learning and our commitment to an equity practice. But then there's the institutional accountability. It's not just the individuals that are going to make your space, you know, through humility, a great space to be in that's responsive and inclusive to different communities. As an organization, you have a responsibility and an accountability as well to model that in your practice your policies and your procedures as well. So you have to create the space that you want. Your patients, your customers cannot come into your space thinking they can be any way they want. There has to be boundaries, commitments, and practices there that they walk in the door. I just went to um, Houston. Where was I at the other day? It was like a yoga store. I can't remember. It might've been Lululemon or somewhere. And it said on the front door, and I took a picture. I was like, I love this. It said on the front door, um, when you're coming in as a member of our community, you know, we expect these things. We expect you to treat people with respect. We expect you to treat our staff with respect. We expect these kind of behaviors. This is the kind of stuff that we do in equity work when we're coming in and facilitating discussions, because there's an expectation there about how we are going to be to each other. And so they have to set that expectation as well. Um, and then you have to like, train up and skill up people because everyone doesn't have the fluency and the equity knowledge to be able to engage in these conversations, even if they want to take action, show them how. And then a lot of people do, like we've had great results uh, with our clients skilling them up in these skills. I, I so love that. I, once again, just that that spurt of, of wisdom that you share has sparked so many different directions that I could take this conversation. But I love the example that you gave about the, the, the yoga store. Um, just yesterday evening, I encountered something uh, which was a similar sign in a different type of facility that I shared with my team. And I said, this is what's needed as we are helping to support this client with exactly what you said. What is that institutional accountability around creating this culture and this environment? And uh, here's what it said. Please take responsibility for the energy you bring into this space. Your words matter, your behaviors matter, our patients and our teams matter. So it was a healthcare facility. Take a slow, deep breath and make sure your energy is in check before entering. Thank you. This is on the front door. And so those messages 
you know, while it may feel like it's such a small thing, we're just putting up a sign. That's not really going to fully, you know, police people to behave in a certain fashion. No, but it does create an expectation that yeah. needs to be stated clearly, you know, invisible for people. So I love that. You're getting so many great um, comments into the chat. Someone said, I have goosebumps, you know, um, <laughs> something you said that is so worth going back to. And we talk often at NWC about how we need to shift the paradigm and stop thinking about this work as obligatory work. And when I say this work, obviously I'm talking about diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, all of those things. We are so conditioned to seeing it as the right thing to do, which it is, to where it just feels like an obligation. What I love about how you talked about your, your partner's culture and how he honestly just saw it as an honor. I thought to yeah. myself, we need to really make sure we're reframing more often to get people to think along those lines. This is not just an obligation, but think about it as an honor, as an opportunity. And so that really resonated with me. And I just felt the need to, to amplify it because it was so good. Kristen, it was so good. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, it is an honor. You know, it's a privilege and it's an honor um, to be able to use our voices and stand in them. And that's like a great privilege of the country that we live in. And I think that we have an obligation um, in our position to push this work as far forward um, and as fast as much as we possibly can. There's been a lot that has come out of the activism in the United States that has had positive influences around the world. And so, you know, I think it's great that we do that and it's great that we stand into it and it's not um, an obligation. So it's a, that's an interesting point, the point about it being obligatory, because I, you know, as a physician, I work in a lot of healthcare spaces and I work with a lot of hospitals and healthcare systems and they bring me in because the thing is, is that it's very challenging um, in the healthcare space for a lot of very unique reasons um, to do this kind of work. And one of the things, the two main things that we deal with in the healthcare space are extreme power imbalances. Okay. So um, addressing power imbalances is part of the cultural humility framework. And it's one reason that we love to use it in the healthcare space, because it has to be addressed, um, the kind of extreme power imbalances and what that does and what that creates in the context of the relationships between physicians and patients or, you know, whoever is interacting in the healthcare ecosystem, um, but also the idea of decision makers. So in an organization, when I'm working with an organization, like we trained 600 supervisors last summer at AT&T. Okay. It was like, like a really big deal for us and a really big client. And we were training decision makers, like kind of like mid-level decision makers. And what was very interesting is that we were able to target the training for that. Now, when I come into a healthcare facility, the challenge that they have is that they cannot artificially concentrate the decision-making into a small part of the organization in healthcare. It doesn't happen because you have physicians and then you have all of the like mid-level providers as well, like right. physician assistants, nurse practitioners, nurse anesthetists. They're not just making decisions. They are making critical life-saving decisions. We are taught to critically think. We are taught to question things. We are taught to continue lifelong learning. And so when you're coming in with an equity initiative, a strategy that might work in an organization where folks are used to the fact that I don't make decisions, they're kind of used to being told certain things, it doesn't work in the healthcare space. You're not gonna tell a bunch of people that are making 
critical life and death decisions every single day, how to think, what to do, what to think. They're going to question everything. And so I get brought in a lot because it's like, no, we need another physician here, you know, speaking to this crowd. And I'm like, no, it's, it's not that you need another physician. You need to give people agency and you need to teach them how to critically think about equity work rather than trying to take them to the end point right there. That's the issue. It's just you like my style because I don't come into training with a specific objective. My training and our our whole learning pathway is based on progressive understanding of critical thinking and discernment and about how to take action and how to understand like what kind of action is going to be most effective given the fact that we are in these systems with the power imbalances, with the demands of capitalism. I teach people how to think about this and how to take action um, that's going to be appropriate. So agency is very important. We never tell people this is the community that you need to support. We encourage organizations, let people just decide what communities they want to support. Quit trying to tell them they have to support community X because it's a priority to the organization. If they want to support community Z, let them support community Z. You want them practicing equity skills. That's what you want them doing. If you want more people specifically that are going to support your equity initiatives around community X, that is not an individual training objective. You need to be asking people at the interview when you're bringing them in holistically, not just what skills they have. Do you actually support this community? This is a priority to our organization. That's a whole nother, um, that's a whole nother uh, thing over there. Cause sometimes we get called in to deal with things on the training side that I have to remind them, this is not a training issue to fix. This is an institutional, organizational, strategic thing that you need to fix in your hiring. We can't just train people to care about things that they don't care about. We look for the people that do care and we train them up and skill them up. No, that is so good. I, I appreciate the way in which you articulated that. What is, what's coming up for me is that and we're seeing this too in NWC. Um, based upon the industry and the organization, like we do a lot of work with the engineering, you know, companies, right? So engineers have a certain way of thinking and I don't, I'm not putting all of them in the same category because no one group is a monolith. But at the same time, I akin it to what you shared about um, people that are in the medical and the clinical space. Yes, they're, they are, they're taught and trained to approach things in a certain way. And I think that has such great relevance to how in which we as DEI practitioners and consultants need to upskill ourselves, our approach and our practices to make Make sure we're really um, thinking about those nuances so that we really can help connect the dots for people. So that is that is really, really good. Um, yeah, because it, it's not going to work. Like in some spaces, the, the strategies are not going to work. Um, they're not going to work at all. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and to your point, we have to get away from people just assuming that some type of training or we like to use language like learning experiences are going to get the job done. I mean, that's a part of it because yes, the exposure, the awareness, the the forcing the opportunity for people to receive information that they can be in critical thought about is good but it's just a piece of it. We have to also parallel that to other approaches that really impact systems, right? Um, <laughs> policy, culture, behaviors, <laughs> and how to, how, so, so it's, it's not just a one and done. It's, it's a both and, and it's a consistent both and. Absolutely. From here to forevermore, I would say, until we can see some really significant changes that are happening that don't seem to be on the horizon, unfortunately. I know. So, and we don't even, I mean, from our perspective, we do a lot of assessments before we develop learning paths for our clients. And we assess based on like our models and what we've learned and our data and what we know works and what doesn't work. But it is 
critical that the organization has an equity strategy already in place on the organizational side. We don't take on clients that do not have a DEI strategy in place and that they're not already working on it because isolated training is not the answer. Like our clients, we demand a level of seriousness to the work um, because we're completely disinterested in perpetuating the kind of check the box, one off, we're just going to bring you in, then you're going to leave. It doesn't work. If you really want training to work, it needs to support an overall organizational strategy. Yeah. So Krista, someone sent actually a message through um, a direct message to me. I'm not sure if that was intentional or not, but just in case it was, um, I don't want to disclose who shared this, but um, the, the Stop Woke Act in Florida you know, was mentioned in that, in that direct message. And certainly it makes the work harder when we are met with other resistors. Um, and specifically what this person was re referring to is when, you know, when schools are prevented from schools and companies from, you know, allowing employees to be able to take up DEI work and attitudes and practices and learning experiences. Um, it's tough. It's tough to teach about equity work in that context. And so, you know, what do you say to those who are in these spaces and these geographies who are met with these other resistors that are, have not quite yet found its way to maybe some of the other geographies where it's a little bit easier? Absolutely. So I'm in Texas and I will just say, I feel your pain and I understand the um, feeling and the frustration of the government's uh, continuously passing laws and uh, codifying basically the limitation of what can and can't even be taught in uh, school. So the most recent thing in Texas was that uh, last week or the week before, they decided that they're going to quit using the term slavery in our K-12 public schools in Texas, and instead they're going to use a term uh, involuntary relocation. I mean, they're really just trying to sanitize everything um, and really take away the, oh yeah, yes, Liz, that's what they're doing. So they're taking, they're trying to take away the impact, the violence, the brutality, and this is the reality of, you know, what actually happened. And so what do we do in these spaces. This is where you have to understand the DEI maturity of the space that you're in. And you have to know what is possible with level of maturity. So when we're coming in, even on the training side, I need to assess and understand where this organization is at DEI maturity wise. I There are a couple of things that I can look at and you can get a very quick clue about where they are. This does not need to be an eight month uh, assessment. There are a lot of very obvious things if you're used to doing this work that can clue you into where they are at um, in their maturity. There are a lot of different maturity models. We, we based ours off of um, Deloitte and customize it for ourselves based on the work that we do. But if you're at a place that is pushing that these things cannot be done, you have to understand what can be done. They're not as powerful as they seem. They're just strategic, a lot of folks, in that they're not trying to win over hearts and minds um, with kind of the hateful things that we're seeing they only care about institutional accountability point. And so they're going straight to positions where they can codify things, they're keeping themselves in spheres where they can have influence on the policies and the procedures. They don't care if one agrees with it, they don't care. It's just a matter of getting it into uh, the policy. So I think that we need to take a clue from that and kind of get ourselves into those spaces as well um, and push what we're doing also. But if they can only talk about X, talk about X. 
Okay. Don't stop the work. What I like to do personally, I don't talk about any particular intersections of identity. A lot of folks are very, 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 very concerned with um, silencing and erasing Black history, Black pain, Black trauma in our country, in the United States. And so I personally take a really different approach. Through allyship, we're not talking about any particular community. We don't talk about the details. You need that work, but you need to be specifically focused on anti-racism work. It's that deep if you want to go. You cannot scratch the surface on that. You need someone who's only doing that. And since we focus on a lot of different communities. Allyship is a good position for us because we talk about the structures that are underneath that. We talk about those structures replicate themselves in any system of inequity. And that's really what our work is based on. And they're not outlawing that kind of work. And so we come in and talk about it, but it reaches a bigger audience because people are thinking to themselves, I have seen this in my community in X. And the other person is thinking, I have seen this in my community in X, or I have seen this in my you know, home country because we have a cast. I have, everybody is thinking about the ways that they've seen it um, show up. And so I have found that strategy very, very helpful, especially in Texas, where we can still deliver the impact um, without necessarily bringing up very specific things that people are uh, regulating, to be quite honest. They're just regulating what can and cannot be said. Yeah, no, I so appreciate that. Um, in just a second, we are going to shift and allow questions, comments, contributions from those who are joined here with us in this live podcast. And so if you um, desire to unmute yourself and to be spotlighted to share, then please raise your hand and I will call on you. You also have the option of using the chat. If you would like for um, me to present your question for you, we'll be paying really close attention to those. Um, but so as I give you some time to think about what you may want to share, um, I want to ask maybe one or two more questions for you. Um, as you were just sharing, what was coming to mind for me is the distinction between DEI work and anti-racism work. And obviously there's a lot of, you know, interconnectivity, but there is an important distinction. And so can you just share from your vantage point, because I'm seeing, I'm seeing a need for that distinction. And, and quite honestly, recently there was an article that was released, um, and I'm going to see if I can source it, place it into the chat, but I just want to get your thoughts on that. The difference between DEI work and anti-racism work. Right. So anti-racism work, uh, the vast majority of it that we see, the people that are really producing like the very rich content in anti-racism work, this level of work in uh, the equity space is what we would consider very high level, very serious um, equity work on the spectrum of activism. Okay. Activism to me is like a very, very high level of equity work. You need people with specialized knowledge, high equity fluency, and a lot of equity skill, um, to be able to do that kind of work. You deal with a lot when you are doing this kind of very specialized work. And it doesn't matter if it's anti-racism, or the kind of work that's going on in the LGBTQIA plus community. There are a lot of uh, work with women, with other communities, disabilities, where it is just very highly, highly specialized, high level um, work. All right. So our organizations, and I get a lot of Kate and DI for saying this, every time I post it, I have to post unpopular opinion first because I know that people are going to get activated and upset when I say it, but I, I'm just going to give my observations on this. Um, our organizations, okay, are not the conduit for activism level work. 
Okay. That kind of really extremely detailed, high level uh, work that you're seeing there, that has to be done outside of organizations because of the limitations of what is happening inside of the organizations. These are capitalistic, deeply rooted in the values of capitalism businesses. And we have to keep that in mind. Even healthcare organizations, pharmaceutical organizations where there's like a lot of altruism, uh, they're probably even worse, okay? There's so much money being passed around. You have to know that that is sitting there. So that kind of deep level work needs to be done um, outside of the organizations. And you need to bring experts in when the organization has set a priority specifically around the community. You're not looking for a general DEI person. You need someone who is doing that high level of work around the community. Okay. So that's like first. The second thing is like, what is DEI? What are we doing in organizations? Inside of organizations, your chief diversity officers, I'm usually hired either by the CDO, someone on their team, or the head of learning and development. What they really need um, is support for taking care of and responding to and being inclusive to a variety of communities. Inclusion is something really different than the kind of very specific activism level work. Inclusion is about understanding the needs of many people. And in creating environments where we can include many different people and the policies, procedures, skills, and practices where we can do that. Okay. So that kind of work is very, very different. Okay. This is more like, honestly, like intercultural work, identity work, than it is about very, very specific things. So if the organization has set a priority around a community, yes, you need to bring the experts in and you need to bring experts in um, to do that kind of work and navigate those uh, conversations. But the general DEI work, the vast majority of what organizations are doing it fluctuates, you know, it's, it's anti-racism and then something happens in the organization and we need to focus on this community. And so they're spending a year or two really focusing on another community and trying to build up policies and procedures to be more inclusive towards, you know, community X, which is great, do that work, but don't expect any organization to forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever only center one community and put all of their efforts and works around that single community is just not what organizations are in the business of. That's what community organizations do. And we need them doing that work. But we need the community organizations to come into organizations and help us when we have that particular focus, but it's going to come and go. So the faster we can get it into policies, procedures, and skills that everyone is expected to have, the better. Uh, because we don't want to think, oh, they're going to always be focusing on for the next 10 years. They're not. <laughs> That's yeah. just my but unpopular opinion. Okay. I'll just go out and say unpopular opinion. No, so much of what you said, I definitely agree with. And um, so the distinction I feel like for so long, I think, especially after George Floyd's murder, right? It felt as though the work was just blending a whole lot. And again, there's a lot of interconnectedness, but the distinction was getting lost. And so I, I am a big fan of having very intentional conversations to help people to understand what that distinction looks like. I did locate that article and I did share it into the chat. The title of it is The Difference Between DEI and Anti-Racism at Work, According to the diversity chief of a $37 billion company. And the company that they were referring to is actually um, Twilo. And so um, Libra Clemens, who is the CDO for um, at Twilo, is the one that brought that perspective. And there was so much in that article that resonated with me. So I wanted to bring it to this conversation as well as to this community. 
Okay, I'm not seeing any hands up right now, and I'm not seeing any immediate questions into the chat. So maybe people are still kind of percolating on perhaps what they want to share. So I'm going to go to my next question. So like you, I recently had this epiphany where I was taken aback by what I perceived to be some banter among DEI practitioners on social media about there being one singular way of doing this work. And uh -oh. so my point of view is that there is not one way to be a DEI practitioner and why that's a good thing for us. And so I'm actually gonna share into the chat, the blog that I wrote on that, but I want you and I just to have dialogue on this. What, what, are your, what are you thinking? Are you seeing some of the same things I'm seeing where there's certain people that are saying, let's just tear the whole thing down and start over. And I get the sentiments because a lot of what we're doing, a lot of how it's being perceived by others is um, it's, it's flawed, it's not perfect, but that's the case for every discipline in every industry. So I just wanna understand Understand what is your perspective? Uh, on you you're talking about the folks that are like uh, tear down the DI industry, and you know we need to build something different. That's like you yes. know yes. not just liberation yes. and focus, yes. equitable. Yes. I yes. yeah yeah. Behind it, there are a lot of things that are flawed around it, but I also believe that one of the things that we have to become much more um, cognizant of is we're in the space of diversity, right? So where is our diversity within our space and understanding that there are different ways in which to show up to this work because there are different needs across all the many different types of organizations. Yes, we need standards. We do need something that's a mark of excellence, but beyond that, I just want some of the banter to stop. There's work for all of us to be able to make some impact in so many oh, ways. There's too much work. There's so many opportunities right now because organizations are focusing on this. But I mean, I get activated by these conversations too. And some of my like honestly favorite people, especially on LinkedIn, I'm thinking of one person in particular that I'm not going to say their name, but I mean, me and this person, we get on phone calls. Like I just love... I love their voice. I love what they say, but I'm telling you, it's like very pie in the sky. It's very, um, it's very theoretical because wow. even though this is absolutely like, I am, it's like, I'm with you. It is, it's like your level of work is like on the forefront of activism. I mean, it's the, it's yeah. absolutely what we would be reaching to, but I don't know. I mean, I'm just looking at my clients. Like, are you going to be able to come into this space with that and get anything yeah. done? Because I always think back to myself and the experience that I had in this environment where there, I was like the only, there was nobody else. I would have loved for someone to come in and make things 5% better rather than to say, we're going to take down the whole DEI field because it's not absolutely perfect. I mean, that's ridiculous. No, like people, they need us. There are so many people in these spaces where they're the only one, or there's a the handful in the whole organization. They don't have the support. If we can get people even 10%, 3%, 4%, 6% more equity fluent, to me, that's a win. And we collect a lot of data around what we do because we need to demonstrate to our clients these wins. We need to demonstrate to our clients that your folks are getting better. And we do way better than five or 10% on our client engagements with um, um, our uh, engagements. But uh, yes, I see Anthony's hands up. So I'm going to pause so we have time to take that question, but I'm with you. We don't need to tear each other down. And I make a lot of posts on that. We need to support each other and the different approaches that people are taking. Yeah, no, so good. I'm, I'm very much aligned with you. Okay, Anthony, welcome. Thanks so much for being here, friend. It's good to see you. Thank you. It's been a few weeks. I apologize and came a little late again today, but no, it was quite this, a uh, this topic triggers me. Um, and 
Dr. White, you know, I read your post the other day about diversity of, <laughs> uh, of our space. And so here's where I think, and I'm, I'm going to pontificate for a minute. And then I just want an opinion. It's sort of a question slash opinion, but I think part of our challenge as practitioners in, in this space, at least for me, is that we spent a number of years with organizations who spend a lot of time thinking that they have to metricize everything. Um, and they, they run and uh, we've created a space where we've maybe conditioned corporations to believe in that the only way to, the only way to get in is through the business case, that this is about money and this is about an ROI and, and how do we balance that against data? And, and we tend to want to avoid what you just said earlier, Christian, which was hearts and minds. And we're not going to do this work if we're not going to do the deep dive. And so then when we start talking about the deep dive, we can't avoid the, the anti-racism conversation because we know that that's the most dominant discriminatory practice in the history of America. And yep. so the balance becomes, how do you separate anti-racism and, and ride that fine line between I'm an activist or I'm, uh, I'm, an act, I'm, I'm doing activism work or I'm doing, um, uh, what's the other word I was looking for? Advocacy work, right? There, there, this, this fine line between activists versus advocates right activists love to disrupt the system general general yeah. definition thank god advocates <laughs> like to play within the system and mm -hmm. that's a hard balance and i think that that's where the challenge comes in and you know i i i talk a lot about i know that i've had a transformation i like your word epiphany dr white i've had an epiphany over the last couple of years about how i think about companies who who rely a lot on surveys without qualitative information and without having those deep discussions. How do you marry the two? Because we've got companies who spend too much time on 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 how do I have a dashboard and how do I have a metric? They're not really thinking about the realities of the situation because those that's great. This will give you a plane, but this isn't going to land your. This will land your plane, but if you can't put the rivets in your plane to build it, your plane's going to crash. With all, so how do you balance that? And I, I'm curious because I, I, I'm rambling. How do you balance that? <laughs> Let's talk about that. <laughs> I, I have a lot to say on this. I don't know if you want to jump in first, but um, I definitely have something to say about that. <laughs> so, so I'll be brief because I want to hear and I want this audience to hear from you, Kristen. Um, oh, there's so much to say. So here's the thing. Even you brought up the business case. And I, I am certainly one of those practitioners that I do believe the business case has value. I also I'm able to hold the middle and understand that. The problem with leading with the business case is that it takes out of the conversation just the pure fact of humanity being centered. Right, and I right. don't think that, and I think that's also really important. So now, I, I mean, you know, we shift and we evolved. And so, but here's what I would say for all of those that are saying, take the business case out of the, the dialogue altogether. I go back to what you shared before. We have to be strategic. And if that is an entry point for someone that's the influencers of organizations to start to engage, then you know what? I'm not gonna shy away from starting there. Am I also gonna make sure that while I have their attention because I'm introducing the business case, that I also make sure that they understand the humanity aspect of this work and all the implications surrounding that? Yes. But um, so I'm with you, it is complex. I want to turn it back over to you, Kristen. What do you say? I would say um, equity fluency and DEI maturity need to come into that conversation quite a bit because 
on, again, I'm on the training and development side. So the organizations I work with had generally have already worked with a consultant to develop an organizational strategy. They've done assessments. They've spent a year or two years really doing this, and they're trying to actually make it happen. The challenge that we saw um, in 2020 from the training and development, like on the learning and development side, the challenge that we saw is that we were seeing strategies that were all about like business cases and like kind of theoretical things. And the right. answer on the training side was unconscious bias. Okay. Right. The tool that people had in their hand, unconscious bias. Then we have George Floyd. It wasn't just George Floyd. There were many high profile murders of black Americans that year that happened. All of a sudden people are waking up and now organizations are taking a cue from an activism level movement. And this caused a lot of problems on the training and development side. And the reason is because the teams that we were working with did not have the equity fluency to go into an anti-racist conversation. And so I'm working with organizations that need more equity fluency. And so I'm at a different place in the kind of like equity development cycle. Like they've already built their case. So we're not having those conversations with them about why they should be doing this work, but we're seeing the gaps in their equity fluency. And I'm telling them, you're not going to be able to accomplish all of these things in your strategy with unconscious bias and cultural competency training um, and then some compliance training. They're not going to have the tools in their belt to even get into these conversations. I do not think that these deep uh, anti-racism, these conversations that come up, this is bringing up violence they need to have trauma awareness. They need to understand trauma-informed approaches. They need to understand psychological safety as it applies to equity work, which is different than the general HBR um, psychological safety articles that we get. They need to understand how to position themselves. They need to understand how to hold space, what that actually looks like, what the skills of that looks like. They need to understand cultural humility before they go into these conversations. Like I wanna get people ready to go into these deep dives. 100% we need our activists. Our activists are the ones out in front of this work, staying very focused on communities and their needs, but we have to bring them into organizations at the right time. Otherwise, there is a lot of harm that happens uh, within these conversations. People are not good to each other. They're talking over each other. They're not listening. They're reharming. They're debating about right. very traumatic. It's really hard to watch. I mean, I was like, I was telling organizations, no, yeah. like do not send them into this conversation until you do some baseline, basic two hours of training to get them ready for this other one. Because the activists, when they come in, they're not going to sugarcoat it. They're just going to say it, and people need to be ready for that. Well, this is where my mindset has shifted. I'm glad you said that because there is a real difference between learning and development and training, right, and mm -hmm. assessing an organization's culture. And this yeah. is where I think we fail as practitioners, not we, all of us on this call or anything, but just general, yeah. that to your point, the activist wants to come in and pound a hammer. And there's yeah. a way to do that. There are people that are trained, myself one, there are people that are trained, facilitators trained to do that work. They know how to manage trauma. They know how to ask the right questions. Yeah. And what happens is or, I think organizations fall into this trap where they've decided that they're going to have, and then this was the, really the case post-George Floyd. We're going to have these uh, company conversations and yeah. nobody in that room is trained to deal no. with those conversations. And so you've made the situation worse. You've alienated yeah. a group of people who may want to hear, yes. but you've decided that the answer is bias training. Oh, There's my God. It's like getting a pill over. It's like going to a, a drugstore and getting a, a vitamin. That's not your answer. That's training. 
But yeah. you have you don't even know what your organization wants. What are your people saying? Are you finding that out because 30% of your people said that there's a race problem? What do those 30% of the people mean? Have you talked to them? But you're relying on this, this, this metricized data to say, oh, got to do bias training. So you've invested all this money. They don't listen to their people. They're not listening, right? They don't and, listen. No, and, and people will tell them they're getting pushback in certain departments. Oh, so-and-so said this, or the chair of this said that. The chair of this, we need to run an assessment. I'm like, you don't need to run an assessment. That is data. Like what they're telling you, that's also data, yeah, right? Like data, we call it qualitative, qualitative data. data. You yeah. take it and you use it. Like that's what they're saying is just as important as what the numbers are you know, on these spreadsheets that you're getting uh, from right. these huge, like year long assessments that they're doing. They do a lot of assessments. Yeah, I stopped saying yeah. we're assessed out, we're surveyed out, we're engaged, <laughs> we're engaged out. And I think they're great, like I do them. But what I've, what I've the, the, the epiphany to use Dr. White's word that I've taken over the last couple of years is, I'm not gonna try to push a company to do some sort of metric assessment. I'm gonna ask you, do you wanna do that? And then do you wanna do what comes with that? Or do you wanna do this first? Because you, you, you have to have some measuring bars. You have to have something to measure. But if you're not willing to find out why you're measuring, then let's just not measure. I'm just probably not the guy for you. Yeah, we're, that's we're the key. Being able to articulate why are you measuring? Do you plan to do something with the data that's going to come forth? Because if not, right. we should go down this path because you're just setting yourself up for failure. Yeah. Thank you so much, Anthony. I really appreciate you joining um, the conversation today. I'm going to try to work in one more question. Um, and this comes from Tina McDaniel. Thanks for joining us, Tina. Um, how do you see DEI work parallel with change management? So we talked about DEI work and the distinction between anti-racism work. But now the question on the table is um, how do you see DEI work parallel? parallel with change management. Right. So a lot of DEI work is change management. So ultimately what we're looking for uh, when we come in and work with organizations, we're looking for a cultural transformation. Like we want the organization culture to transform. And so that's a painful process um, in change management. There are tons of parallels between the change management process and what we are doing in DEI. I think we always need to apply an equity lens to what we're doing. So just kind of the general change management literature that you look at, really take your DEI lens and make sure that you're looking at it and asking yourself, how does this specifically apply to equity work? Because there's things that we're dealing with on the equity side that folks are not usually kind of explicitly uh, dealing with in some of these other spaces. And I think psychological safety is like it's like a main one uh, where we see kind of the way that it's generally uh, looked at, which is fantastic. I, I love the concept. I love the data, like the work that's come out, the papers that have come out around it, but I have found the need to um, uh, tweak that and to kind of look at it a little bit in the lens of equity and the specific things that we um, see and focus on and have to uh, address before we can really do uh, deep equity work. So change management is very integral to what we do uh, in the DEI space. Awesome. So in these last 60 seconds, I'm going to ask my team to make sure they share all of your contact information, well, particularly your LinkedIn. Um, <laughs> they, if this audience would like to connect directly with you, I know someone has um, presented that question earlier, but this conversation could go on for days and it's been so rich. I'm so grateful for, for your time and your willingness to share. Um, and these remaining seconds, I want to give you the final words. You know, if there's something that's coming up for you that you have a lot of energy around that we haven't been able to really bring to this conversation, um, I want to I give you the chance to um, to release that into this atmosphere. 
Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me here. I don't think there's anything like really in particular. I just see some comments coming in uh, again about data um, and organizations taking a lot of data. I would just say, you know, try to push your clients to look at the qualitative data, the things that people are saying, and to close that loop, just to have a very direct way that feedback is coming in. And that also uh, feedback is being addressed by the organization as well. And, you know, to just be very, very specific. Like when we look at data, it's like five questions. Like we'll send out like a four or five question survey. That's it. Because we only are going to be acting on those couple of things. Uh, just endless amounts of data and strategies and, you know, plans. Like we just want to know what action we can take. That's it. Just focus on um, action if you're able. Thank you so much for having me here today. I really appreciate the opportunity to be with you um, in this space and to all of you for taking some time to be here today as well. Yeah, this was great. Have a great weekend, everyone. Thank you so much. Hopefully we'll see you again next week. Bye-bye. Thank you.